That was awesome. You can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We are in the final, final, final chapter. Wow, there's so many people in here. Some of you are not in your normal spots. You're freaking me out. All right, if you could turn in your Bibles to Acts 15. Um, we are in the final chapter that we are studying in the book of Acts. Obviously, the book of Acts has 28 chapters. This is kind of halfway through. But this is where we, we kind of like had the trajectory of this uh, whole series to end at. And I've got to be honest with you, we're ending differently than I anticipated. What I wanted to do was I wanted to like land on Acts chapter 15 and the, the letter um, that the Jerusalem council had to Gentile believers. That's where I wanted to end up with because it was so cool to see how the church experiences conflict and gets to the other side. And, and, and this amazing thing that they, they had as far as their criteria for what rules they were going to give to the, the Gentile believers. And it, I loved it. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then, and then but that, that statement right there, that the way that they made their decision was they looked at what, the, what Scripture said and they listened to the Holy Spirit's leadership and they used the, what made sense and they used those two together. That they weren't in conflict with each other, but they, they can't they use that as their, their criteria for making a decision. That's not what we're going to, what we're going to be preaching on today. Because everything in studying this and leading up to that, all the stuff that, that happens in chapter 15 up to that point, I find to be so much, uh, even more compelling than that statement. Uh, because it's dealing with conflict, but it's also dealing with the reality of what the church was going through at their core with the message and the mission of Jesus. So if you've got your, your Bibles, please open them again to Acts 15, and we're going to be reading the first several verses here and unpacking this. Chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Okay, pause real quick. Jerusalem was the hub, but all of a sudden persecution hits and Christians are going everywhere. They're going all over the place. And one of the places that they're going to is Antioch. Antioch becomes kind of like the hub of Christian missions and, and Christian work. In fact, it's like for Delta Airlines, it's like Atlanta. Okay, it's like where it all comes in and out of. People like Antioch is where Christian thought is progressing and Gentiles are becoming Christians. It's, it's, it's kind of like the laboratory of everything Jesus talked about. It's now happening in Antioch. So certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. And we're teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay. Keep going from that. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told... They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they had reported everything God had done to them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. These are the guys you never want to invite to your party. But they always show up. They're the people that like everything is going good. Like people are freaking out. People who are far from God are coming to God in Jesus. People who, this is kind of, it's amazing because everything that God said was going to happen is happening. Genesis 12, way back in our history, God says to Abraham that, that you're going to, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing not just for you but for all the nations. And then we have Jesus and Jesus says that this, this message is going to start in Jerusalem but then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria and then it's going to go to the uttermost part of the world. 
And it's happening, and we're, we're front row seating what's happening, that it's all taking place. And as soon as everyone's getting stoked about these Gentiles, non-Jewish people have zero incentive to turn to Jesus. Turning to Jesus, somebody goes, well, yeah, but are you circumcised? Because you got to do that. And then it's like, wah, wah, wah. every single time they get back to Jerusalem. Guess what God's doing? It's amazing. Gentiles are becoming Christians. Yeah, but are they circumcised? Wah, wah, wah. And it's like, well, uh, I mean, should we like, I mean, is that something that should we, should we have missionaries that are going into the uttermost part of the world, accompanied by physicians who could take care of this issue for any man that becomes a Christian? Is that, what we're, is that what we're doing right now? Is that the mission that Jesus put us on? And the thing that's so interesting is that this group, this is not the only time they show up. This, is, this group is in other parts of the New Testament. They're called the Judaizers. Um, basically saying, yeah, we believe in Jesus. And, and these guys, they're Pharisees, but they believe in Jesus. They're not haters against Jesus. They're on team Jesus. There used to be Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders who hated Jesus. These guys aren't them. These guys are the ones who are like, no, we're all in on team Jesus. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. And all, this is for all people. But they've got to jump on board with our practices. And the practice that all of us started out with, it was super easy. We were babies when it happened was circumcision. Why would they have any problem with that? This is all of a sudden becomes, they call, they're called in the New Testament, the Judaizers. They're also called the circumcision group, which if you're looking for a name for your group, there's better. We've got the chess club, got Batman club, choir, the circumcision group. This is what they're called, and they love it because, like, this is the identifier for us. Like, this is something that set us apart from all the other people. This and all of our traditions. And so what we're going to call them right now is the Jesus Plus group. It's way better than the circumcision group. This is the Jesus Plus group. We believe in Jesus. We're all in on Jesus. Plus. Like, you, if you want to be saved, all you need is Jesus. Plus. And this is, if you wanted to break down their theology, this is how it looks. I believe in Jesus. I believe in him with all my heart. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. And I obey. And therefore, I am saved. I believe in Jesus, plus I obey, and by obey, I mean I, I'm obeying all that God's word calls me to do, all the laws, all the customs, all the Passover feasts, circumcision, the whole shebang, and that's how I show Jesus that I am believing enough that I'm going to be saved. And this is poison, because this isn't the gospel. This isn't the good news. This is just an extension of the bad news. And, and, it, and it starts to just infiltrate its way into Jewish circles that are Christians. Again, people who are not hating on Team Jesus. They love Jesus. But they are so fervent about the fact they want these non-believers to really be believers that they want to make sure that they are going through the, the proper, they're jumping through the proper hoops to get there. And so they, one of the cool things in the Bible is that Luke wrote the book of Acts to be a chronological, like, accounting. He's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Right? And so he's like, look, I don't want people, people are saying lots of stuff about Jesus, but I want it to be fact-checked. I want eyewitness account of the chronological work of Jesus. And that's the Gospel of Luke. And then the sequel is the book of Acts. And I want to have a chronological sequence of how the church explodes. And so when you read throughout the other parts of the New Testament with the letters to different, different people groups, like by Paul and by Peter and Timothy, they fit into the Acts timeline. And so you can find out this whole disagreement about this circumcision group and everything, you can actually find another part where it's talked about. Galatians chapter 2 is that place. And actually, before these guys, before Paul and Barnabas and Peter and all those guys go down to Jerusalem to make a council to figure out what in the world are we going to do about this, there was a disagreement. 
And then there was one guy that actually fell prey to this that shouldn't have, but he did. It, happens to, it can happen to any religious person, honestly, including someone who walked with Jesus. This guy walked with Jesus for three years, and a lot of us can relate to him because he's super impulsive. He thinks after he says, or he thinks four and a half hours after he does. He's just super impulsive. And of course, I'm talking about Peter. Peter falls into this heresy, and he gets called out by Paul. The guy who we talked about last week that was the most unlikely convert, he gets called out by Paul in Galatians chapter 2, right before they go down to Jerusalem. Let's go ahead and take a look and see what Paul said. Paul describes it this way. When Cephas, by the way, Peter's got three names in the New Testament, Simon, Peter, and Cephas. Cephas is the Greek rendering of, of Peter. We'll just call him Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It's like, man, you, are, you walked right through the door, you're dead on arrival. What you just did, there's no, what you just did and what you just said, there's no explaining yourself out of it. There's no justifying it. Like, it was, it was messed up enough that you are D-O-A right now with what you said. And I'm going to oppose you right to your face. And he did. What, did he, what, did he, what was he opposing? For before certain men came from James, these are guys that are coming up from Jerusalem. These are the Jewish homeboys coming up from Jerusalem to Antioch. He used to eat with the Gentiles, which is cool. Because that's what Jesus was all about. Jesus said, again, this is something where I am blessing you so that you're a blessing to other people. And my mission, again, is for all ethnics, all ethnic people, all colors and flavors of, of humanity. No matter what you've done, it's for everyone. So this is not just for the Hebrew people. It breaks the shackles off of that, and it's going to all people. And Peter's all about this. Peter was the one that, that he actually went to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and, and on the, the roof got the vision that, look, the things that we used to think were unclean to eat, which we would never do, are totally okay now. There's a new world that we've stepped into because of Jesus. He knew better, but all of a sudden, he's like hanging out with the Gentiles, which is great, because that's what Jesus called him to do. But when they arrived, the homeboys from Jerusalem, his Jewish friends, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to who? The circumcision group. Now, here's the thing. This is like mean girls all over again, okay? This is like what, what happens when you have someone who's like, I desperate, like, I, I, I'm hanging out with you. You're amazing. You're cool. I'm investing in you. And then all of a sudden, the popular kids show up, and all of a sudden, you kind of take a little bit of distance back. This is what Peter's doing. Peter's like, listen, no, it's, you have to understand. Like, I, Jesus said that this forgiveness is for you, and I'm all about it, and I, and I love it. I love the fact that it's going to the whole world. But you have to understand, I mean, get, cut me some slack. We grew up looking at you people as unclean. We grew up looking at you people as not only, it wasn't just what you ate, it's what you did. You were pagan people. And yes, awesome, God has forgiven you and, and, and Jesus has extended you. And I'm all about hanging out with you, but I've looked up to these guys my whole life. Like they know, way, I'm just a poor fisherman. I don't know the Bible as well as them. And when they come in here and they see me sitting with you, they're going to draw conclusions about me that I don't, and again, it's just, it's just that your people group have got a reputation. You're unclean. And when they see me sitting with you, they're going to think that I've dropped my standards. And it's, again, it's not you. We're good, we're, right? We're good. It's just that when they come in the room, I feel awkward. And Paul, who was one of those guys... Okay, that, that's his heritage. That's his pedigree. Calls out Peter, the poor fisherman. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. What does he say to Peter when he's calling him out? This is what he says. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be purified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter, don't you realize the whole thing that Jesus was telling this whole time was that all the law was going to be fulfilled in him. Like, you're, you're treating these guys like they have to go through a remedial Jewish course just to qualify in order for Jesus to forgive them. That they've got to jump through all the hoops that our culture have gone through that you and I don't even understand all of it. Why would we do that? This doesn't make a person saved. The only thing that makes this guy saved that you used to sit at the lunch table with was Jesus. And the thing that makes us saved isn't the fact that we knew all the law or abided by it or tried. Jesus was crystal clear. Why did he come in the first place? It was only for that. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Yeah, Peter, I know. We read the book of Leviticus, and we see how everything makes you unclean. Not just sin, like doing something that's wrong, but touching something that's moldy, or touching a dead body, or touching blood. All these things makes us unclean. Ceremonial unclean. We can't go to, to God. We need to have a sacrifice. I totally understand that. I get that. But Jesus paid for that. He is the forgiveness that we need. He is the final sacrifice. Now there is not this unclean, clean. He's made all of us unclean, clean again. All of us who were unclean, he has established us as clean. Which means that if he calls you to go hang out with a sinner who's unclean, that doesn't dirtify you because you've been cleaned by Christ. Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. No. See, I have been crucified with Christ. And not, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Peter, you know where I came from. Yeah, you denied Jesus three times, but I did far worse than that. I did far worse than that. I, don't, I shouldn't even be, I should not even be in this group because of everything that I did, except for that Jesus showed me grace. And if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't even be here. It's no longer I live. That old me, that was crucified with Jesus. It's no longer me, the old Saul who's living, but it's me, the person who's following Jesus. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, Peter. Paul, he loved me, and he gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died from nothing. You walked with him for three years, Peter. You watched him die. You saw the sacrifice and you saw him rise from the grave. If you can still be made clean by jumping through all the hoops of the law, circumcision, Passover, the whole thing, if that is still the requirement, then why did Jesus have to, why did he, why did your friend have to hang on the cross? Why? Because all he would have to do, if that was the case, is come from heaven to earth and go, hey, have you guys read the Old Testament? Sweet, keep doing that, and go back. But he didn't. He died on the cross. I don't know if you've ever been chewed out by somebody who, like, like, like a parent, by a parent or a grandparent, who they, they called you out for something or chewed you out for something, and it stung 
to the point that you might be like 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years old and you still remember it. Like for me, that was my Granny Hilda. I remember Granny Hilda calling me out when I was seven, eight years old. Like I, I, could, I could put you into the room. I could, I could smell the cigarette smoke of my grandpa as my grandma is chewing me out. And the words of Granny Hilda, she's been dead for years. The words of Granny Hilda are still ricocheting around in my head to this day. Because not only was it stinging what she said, what she said was true. You have those words, like someone who called you out back in the day, and you still remember that speech, you still remember getting in trouble, you still remember what they said, and the humiliation of that? That's this. That's this for Peter. Peter, to his dying day, will never forget this lecture that he received from Paul, the unlikely convert. And we know that it took to heart. It actually impacted him because of what happens next. After this speech, after the dust up in Antioch, all of them go back down to Jerusalem. And when they go to Jerusalem, we read what happens next. Again, jumping back to verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, who stands up and says something? Who? Peter. The guy who got chewed out. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, them, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Boom. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. And he goes through and he just starts to drop Old Testament prophecy about, see, this was the plan all along. And we get to be here when Jesus pulled it off. If you want to take a look at the difference in their theology, the Jesus plus group was saying, believe in Jesus plus obey equals you're saved. The gospel group, what this group was establishing, said something different. Believe in Jesus, therefore I am saved. Believe in Jesus, boom, you're saved. Believe in what he did for you, boom, you're saved. There's nothing that you can add to that. Believe in Jesus, therefore I am saved, therefore I obey. I am not obeying this, therefore I'm saved. I believe in Jesus' work for me alone, not plus anything, therefore I'm saved. And then I start to find myself able to live this out, which is the difference between religion and actually what, what Christ's followers are called to do. Typical religion talks about it this way. I obey God. This is any religion. I obey God so that I can get love and acceptance. I obey God so I can get heaven. I obey God so that I can, I can avoid hell or whatever. 
I obey God to do these things. That's typical religion. It's a kid pro quo. The gospel is different than that. It says, because I am loved and accepted by God in Christ, I choose to obey. Because the fact that this has already taken place, my life is looking different. And both of these, you'll notice, both of these two sets of people are obeying God. They could be sitting next to each other in church. Both of them show up to church. That's awesome. Both of them are reading their Bible. Awesome. They're sharing their faith. Awesome. They're both obeying God, but for radically different reasons. The one is obeying because if I don't do this, I'm not going to be saved. I won't be good enough. I have to do this because if I don't do this, like a lot of people don't do this, I'm not going to be rescued by God. The other person is doing the same things, but they're doing it because of the fact that they're saved. Like, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't explain to you how huge this is. This is, like, so amazing. I was given the most generous gift ever by someone who, the more I get to know about them, the more I'm blown away. I'm not, it's not like one of those people where the more you get to know about them, the more disappointed you are or, or, or jaded you are. You actually, the more you're around them, the more you want to be like this person. I don't know if you ever experienced that growing up, but like if you like dated somebody and you got to hang out with their family and you're like, man, I just love their family way more than my family. Like they're just so nice and cool, or you were like, maybe you were like working with somebody, and, and you're like, man, what is it about this person's life that they seem just like different, their work ethic, I, I just, I feel like I want to be alongside this person so that I can be a better person, because I'm blown away by them, that's Christianity, it's that Jesus has done this amazing thing by dying for my sins on the cross, and I didn't deserve it, super generous, and he's, he lived in a way that he's called me to follow him, and so I get to, the more I get to know him, the more I want to be patient like him and forgiving just like him and loving just like him and truthful just like him. It's not like I kick truth to the curb. It's like I get to be around Jesus. It's like the amazing thing about the people who, who Jesus was around. He wasn't just like, hey, I love you and it doesn't matter what you do. He was absolutely truthful, more truthful and holy than anyone else. And yet, people who were sinners flocked to him. Someone put it this way, and I love this. People who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus, they were messed up in their sin. People who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus. Is that how Christians are viewed today? People who are nothing like Jesus love Christians. They get to the end of their conclusion about the sh how the gospel needs to be shaped with these new believers that are coming into the fold, Gentiles. And James comes up with this conclusion. And this is, this is what stopped me in my tracks. I love his conclusion. Listen to what he says. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. My judgment, therefore. Because the fact that this is all God's grace to us, why are we making a laundry list of checkboxes that people have to accommodate in order to be a Christian. That's not how it works. The only box you check is, have I received Jesus' free gift to me? And then watching what he does afterwards. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He, in the letter that ultimately gets drafted, it, it, gets, it sends that message to the Gentile believers, and this is good news. And it says to them, listen, you are Gentiles and Jews in the same church, and so you've got different perspectives on food. 
So Gentiles, don't, don't be jerks to the, to the Jewish people who are having a hard time recognizing that you've got the freedom to eat whatever you want. It doesn't, you know, food sacrificed to an idol is not a big deal to you, and it's not sinful. But recognize that when you're next to a believer, shoving that in, in his face, a, a, a Jewish person, shoving that in his face that you've got the freedom to eat this is just messed up, and that's not Christ's work in you, so don't do that. And, and as far as sexual morality, you need to make sure that, that your sexual ethic is something that, that is connected to Christ. Do these things, and things are going to go well with you. Farewell. That's the end of the letter. That's how it goes. You can read it. It's right there in Acts 15. But the thing that's so, that just blows me away is that the bottom line that we see in this chapter is this, that there is no Jesus plus good news. There is no, like, fill in that blank. Jesus plus uh, how I live my life, good news. Jesus plus the fact that, that, that I'm, I'm a tither or a church attender or a Bible reader or evangelist, good news. That when it comes to salvation, honestly, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is the only equation we see in the gospel as far as someone coming to Christ. It can never be Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus plus nada. And that equals everything. And let me just show you how that impacts two things. The way you see yourself and the way you see others. First off, the way you see yourself, it changes, your, it changes that. Because it causes a less anxious faith and a less self-absorbed faith. It's less anxious because if I'm the type of person that thinks the thing that's securing my salvation is the fact that I am faithfully at church, I'm reading my Bible, I'm, I'm sharing my faith, I'm pretty moral, I'm trying to do the Ten Commandments the best I can, and, and I'm, I'm like just doing it, I'm like killing it. I'm like, man, this is great. And I became a Christian, boom, 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 and I'm like tracking with it. And I could see why God saved me because look at me, I'm great. Bam, bam, bam. And then failure happens at Thanksgiving when you blow up at your mom. Because she brought up what you know she brought up. And that, all of a sudden you're like, it's like everything I've been working up to is lost. It's like, like I, was, I had a great track record, but then I failed again. Okay, i got to get back on track because if, this, if Jesus comes today and he saw and heard what I said to my mom, whoo, hellfire. So i got to get back on track and start getting more moral again so that I can, I can bank in enough morality so that all of a sudden my salvation is secure. You have a less anxious faith when you realize that God met you when you were dead in your sins. There was nothing that you could prove to him by your track record. And he forgave you then. And if you were forgiven for nothing that you could do to show God how awesome you are spiritually, then when you fail, you're not destroyed. You're depressed, you're discouraged, you're frustrated at yourself. But you realize that the same God who rescued you when you had nothing to show for it is still there to rescue you and to bring you through it. It's his grace that still abounds. You also are less self, you have a self, uh, less, uh, less self-absorbed faith. Um, if you think that honestly, like that, man, this is all me. This is all me. What, what you start to do is you start to get a real high entitlement, judgmental stance. Because you're like, you know what? I am like, I'm really, really, really doing great in my faith. Why is it that they can't? I'm, I'm like really, really killing it on, on how I approach the Bible and how I, how I approach my morality and how I approach my decision-making. What is it about this person that, that just so, falls so far short? See, judgment is not a bad thing. Judgment is when a thinking person makes a, 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 a recognition that something is off or on. That's good. Thinking people make judgments all the time. Judgmentalism is where the differences that you're seeing between you and someone else puts you on a pedestal and them lower. 
what Scripture calls that, that more toxic judgmentalism is basically looking at someone else as lower than you because of, of anything, especially with the fact that we recognize that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And because of that, it's nothing that I can add to it, so I can't feel more entitled when I'm looking at someone else. And that actually leads to how I change my view of others. If Jesus is nothing, if I'm actually saved by God's grace, then that means that I'm more empathetic, more patient, and more forgiving. I'm more empathetic, more patient, and more forgiving with the people around me because I'm not looking at them anymore as these failures that just can't get their spiritual life together. I recognize that I had nothing to do with my salvation, and they don't either. And so they're, they're a work in progress just like I am. And this is important, especially with Thursday, right? Especially when we gather around tables with people that are just teeing it up for us to explode like you don't even have to like wonder if it's going to happen <laughs> I want to write every one of my family members and say hey here's the list of things we're not talking about this year wouldn't that be great and then they say oh that's a great list let's talk about number three if the gospel has ruined your life by recognizing that God saved you and you were dead in your own sin, it causes you to look at other people differently. And it causes you to actually be more empathetic with them, more patient with them, because you realize how empathetic and patient Jesus was with you. And more forgiving. Recognizing the powerful recognition of his forgiveness. And the crazy thing is this. They wrap it all up, they put it into a letter, and they sent this good news out to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are blown away by it. They love it. And the church is unified. Paul and Barnabas were so instrumental in this. The unlikely convert and Barnabas, and, and now they, they've done a great mi missions trip already, like a missionary journey, spreading the good news of Jesus. This good news that is Jesus plus nothing, that this religion is defined by nothing that we could do but what he's done for us. And they're getting excited. At the end of chapter 15, they're getting super excited about the fact that they're going to go back out on their next missionary journey. And then you know what happens? They break up. Because they got in a fight. They got in a fight about um, one of the team members that Barnabas wanted to bring on the team, a guy named Mark. And Paul's like, uh-uh, not on my watch. That guy bailed on us on our last missionary journey. We're not bringing Mark. No, we need to bring Mark. Mark is, Mark is God's going to do some significant stuff to him. No, we are not bringing Mark. If, we, if you want to bring Mark, I'm out. Fine, we're out. Fine. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't censor that out. It shows that as human beings, Christians, we still have conflict. We can still be just so dumb, even on the heels of recognizing the amazing grace that God has given each and every one of us that should cause us to be unified. We still divide over stupid Mark-level things. This is so important for us to know as we go into next year, as we're planting a church next fall in Morris. Conflict will happen. Here, conflict will happen. There, it's going to happen. So what's the good news for us? The good news is that the same one who broke the barrier between heaven and earth to get to us, the same one that they talked about in this passage is giving this amazing grace to each and every one of us, enters even into our conflict. How do we know? Because Paul wrote all these letters that we have in the rest of the New Testament. And one of his latter letters, you know what he, he writes? Oh, and by the way, I need some help. If you could make sure that you send Mark. 
Send Mark. He's been of great encouragement to me. The beautiful thing that we see in Scripture is not perfect people, but people who are relying on a perfect God who can even restore wounds and conflicts and divides that we cause. That's great news. The thing that we have to remind us of that is the Lord's table. This is, if you're new to our church, we take the Lord's table once a month. It is our reboot. It's our renewal of our vows with God, a reminder of his work to us. It's the bread. It represents his body and the cup represents his blood. This is something that we shouldn't go into casually or flippantly. This is a time where we reconnect with the communion that we have with our Savior, and we do this together. When we do this, this is the opportunity for you to reflect on your own heart and the distance that maybe you have right now between you and God and your decisions. Maybe you've been someone who's been operating your life from a Jesus plus type of salvation. You feel really good because recently things have been going really well in your faith. Or you've been operating under a Jesus plus salvation, that's why you feel devastated. You fear that you've lost it, that God's gonna kick you to the curb. Let communion be this moment where the gospel washes over your soul once again to remind you it was finished on the cross. His work for you in salvation is complete. We can celebrate that and celebrate that he's not done with us and has not given up on us yet. If you're a believer, this is for you. We exit our rows on the left-hand side. We go around both sides of the table in the front and the back. We take the bread and the cup and we return to our rows on the right-hand side. And in just a moment, we'll take this together. Go ahead and do that right now.